Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Today's investors expect more than a transaction. They want a relationship. Show how your firm merges EQ and IQ with Orion's B520, a new shareable assessment developed by Dr. Daniel Crosby that provides you with emotional and attitudinal insights into clients to facilitate more meaningful investing conversations from day one. Get started today at orion.com forward slash B520. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm joined by Heather Fortner, CEO of Signature FD, a wealth management firm headquartered right here in ATL, Georgia. She's here to talk about leadership lessons that helped grow her firm from $250 million to over $6 billion in her time there. Welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, it's great to have you here. Long, long overdue. So, Heather, uh, you and I, we're going to start with some commonality here. You and I share a background that I think is somewhat unique in the industry. We both share a background in counseling, uh, and maybe it's projection, maybe it's overconfidence, but I'm thinking (laughs) this informed your leadership uh, as CEO, as well as the specific way that SIGFD goes to market and crafts its planning and investing process. So how has that background in, in mental health impacted the way you lead and the way you uh, go, to, go to market? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I, I'm, I don't think it's projection uh, at all. The background in professional counseling has been, I think, probably one of the most beneficial journeys that I've ever taken, not only personally, but professionally. And the reason I say that is because really there were two main academic bodies that I studied during that time. One was the study of people and the other was the study of systems. And those two studies really inform from a individual perspective, what's happening at the individual human level with people so that you can understand motivations and behaviors and actions and needs better of individual people. But then when you couple that with the study of systems and how teams work and what teams need and what organizations need, that really kind of pulls together how do you need to build? How do you need to think about building an organization that is made up of individuals in order to bring that to its best fruition, specifically when you're in an industry of serving individuals? And so that for me, I think being able to bring all of those pieces together and get what I like to call specific tools Mm. for navigating those two areas, I think was just, it was a leg up for me, I have to admit. Yeah. Were you ever a practicing clinician? No, that's the the amazing part. So my undergrad is in finance. Mm -hmm. um, And then I had already started at Signature FD by the time I started my graduate training. I was doing my 
graduate studies at night after work and got my uh, master's in professional counseling at night. And at that point, had a decision to make. Either I was going to go and get my licensure and remove myself from the corporate world, uh, or I was going to, you know, pursue my doctorate degree, which you can't do part time. Yeah. Or I was just going to stay in the corporate world and use what I had learned. And and my vision for pursuing, I remember, you know, when I when I actually told uh, the partners of the organization that that I was going to get a, a master's degree, and they were like, "Okay, a, a master's in finance." I was like, "Yeah, still about that." No, <laughs> it's actually not going to be in finance. But here's why. Yeah. And my belief around that came from really my own personal experience, which was, you know, growing up in a home where resources, financial resources, were very limited. And honestly, the skill in communicating around those resources was very limited. And and my belief was that if you could teach people earlier on how to manage money better, financial literacy, and you could teach them how to communicate about money better, counseling type skills, uh, that you could really make significant impact in families and therefore in communities. Um, so that was really the impetus for that. So I, I just ultimately never wanted to leave the corporate world because I believed that that mission of combining the financial literacy and the ability to communicate well around money um, was incredibly important for me. Yeah, again, I, you know, perhaps this is again projection or, or being self-serving, but there was a there was a poll going around on Twitter the other day, and I've seen a handful of such polls, and it was asking, you know, if you could encourage young people to get any of the following degrees to pursue a, a career in finance, which would you consider? And it was like finance, economics, history, or psychology. And last I looked, psychology was leading the way. And I think it's just a call for us as an industry to look, you know, finance is a true liberal art. Uh, it, it touches every part of the world. And that's one of the reasons it's it's held my interest, which isn't easy to do, you know, <laughs> but it's held my interest all these years is that it sort of touches every part of the world, but especially it touches human behavior. So I think it's awesome that that SIGFD encouraged you to go get advanced training in, in human behavior because it's it's such a huge part. And for me, when I look at the specific things that I learned in my PhD program, I, I have to say, I don't use much of it today. There's some that I use, but the, the research methods, the inquisitiveness, the ability to ask good questions, and even the non-defensiveness, I mean, you know, mixed results there, but one of the one of the most valuable parts of my PhD program, was we would literally watch tape. Like, you know, I would sit in counsel with someone and they would sit there and watch tape of my session and go, this sucked, this yeah. was good. Yes. You did this well, you did this poorly. And I actually worked with a bank years ago, a bank in Western Canada that did that with their advisors. They sort of they sort of had captive advisors, the bank, you know, sort of bank affiliated advisors. And they would videotape advisor-client interactions and break them down. Yes. And 
we would be so much better as an industry if we were more sort of locked into that sort of approach. Yes, I, I completely agree. One of the most, and this kind of goes to the second part of your question, one of the most impactful pieces of training that I remember doing um, while I was doing my graduate work was the study. It was an entire semester's class, and the entire semester was on learning the skill of active listening. Mm. And we would practice every class period for an entire semester just on active listening. And let me tell you, <laughs> you do not realize how poor of a listener you are until you have to get up on the stage in front of a group of other people <laughs> with one other person for 30 seconds, just 30 seconds, and listen and then report back what you heard. Like, it is, you are just blown, I was blown away at how hard it is to dispel the noise and actually focus on a human, to focus on their body language, to focus on what's coming out of their mouth, to understand if there's incongruence between what's coming out of their mouth and what's happening with their body. So one of the things that we did as an organization was we brought that practice into the organization. And so we went through several training sessions where we did active listening sessions and we role played and and we helped people realize, look, this is this is just a tool, right? This is something that any person can learn. Anybody can practice. You can practice it in every area of your life. But it's something, it, it is a tool that you can put in your toolkit to use wherever you go. And this is incredibly important for who we are as an organization and the people, the clients that you serve. Yeah. And so for us, I think those are the small ways, right, that, that my training has influenced who we are, what we think about, how we serve, uh, and how we think about, quite honestly, not only just serving our clients, but serving our team. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask for a specific example of how your training has impacted the organization. That's a great one. And, and I can attest that there is no, there is no tired, like eight hours of listening to other people <laughs> tired. When you arrive at the end of a day of, of counseling and you're talking to eight, you know, eight people yeah. about worst week of their lives, yeah. you are exhausted. And I mean, advisors, advisors are in very much the, the same role. If you're doing it right, it takes a lot out of you. So that's exactly right. I remember during COVID, you know, our advisors were pulling 14 hour days mm -hmm. and they were experiencing everything that our clients were experiencing themselves. Mm -hmm. And then they were on the phone and on Zoom, you know, all day long with clients listening and trying to help from a behavioral perspective calm fears. And they had the fears themselves, right? And so I think that really those core components of how do you listen? How do you talk to people? How do you be empathetic? How do you compartmentalize? How do you not allow that, what, what is someone else's fear or anxiety to crush you Right. As you're sitting with them and listening to all of that, 
what are those type of self-care tools that we can also implement? But then as an organization, to understand from the system component that that's what our team members are experiencing and how as an organization can we come alongside of them to help support them as they are the front lines in dealing with uh, what what truly was very mental and very emotional work. So, you know, this isn't one of my prepared questions, but I, I do want to run with this because, you know, Brad and Ted Klontz have done great research showing that the majority, like the vast majority of, of financial advisors show clinical, <laughs> clinical level symptoms of things like anxiety, depression, sure. and even PTSD in some cases coming out of their, their research was on the great financial crisis. We could hypothesize that COVID would look would look super similar. You know, this is kind of near and dear to my heart. This is why I'm not a clinician. I burn, I burn up. Like, you know, this is why, this is why I stopped doing it is because I was taking work home with me and, you know, I I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. So what advice, what skills, what tools, what resources do you try and imbue your advisors with to do the work we do at the emotional level that makes it meaningful without having it consume them? Yeah, I think that's a fantastic question. And something, quite honestly, that we as an organization, myself, our chief people officer, our director of HR, our senior leadership team, we are constantly on the prowl for more tools and resources uh, because it's a never-ending struggle, right? Let's, Let's be clear. But the hope is that, one, just in acknowledging it and normalizing what people are experiencing. I think there is such research around the fact that when people feel alone and they feel isolated and they feel like they're the only ones that are experiencing these these things, these feelings, these emotions, um, it is so much harder to deal with and so much more desperate, right? So as an organization, we started very early on during that process of talking about it openly, which which quite frankly was uncomfortable. That was uncomfortable for me. It was uncomfortable for the organization, but we knew that it had to happen. We had to address it head on to normalize it, to create some sort of safe space to be able to talk about what are we doing about it? What are the resources? We surveyed our people over and over and over again. What do you need? What are you experiencing? How are you feeling? What do you think? What what do you have going on at home? Everything was anonymous, but it was really in an intent to give people a voice into the fear and decision-making that we were having to face at that time, right? People need to feel seen. They need to feel heard. They need to feel that there is a safe space for them to speak into should they need to. And they need to feel like they belong. And and those core needs from our perspective, really we wrapped programming around those, ensuring that we had employee benefit 
mental health counseling that people could call that wasn't related to us. We don't get any information on it, but here's what you get. Here are the resources that you have. Here are the numbers that you can call should you need to. Here's what they do. Here's how they can help you. Here's some other counseling resources in the community. Should you need, you know, feel like you might need to go talk to somebody, here are some resources that we have vetted. Here's people that we have used who are qualified clinicians that you can go talk to. Um, really, we implemented a new technology. It's a fascinating technology. It was created to bring together uh, the Jewish community for Shabbat dinners, and it was very prolific on college campuses. So people that wanted to come together for Friday Shabbat dinners, but didn't necessarily know each other. And you could create these events, these offerings, these community-type gatherings, and and really have a technology that wrapped around that where people could log in, they could see every event that was available to them, and they could request to participate, go host, they could. And, and through that technology, we as the leadership team said, we're going to create these community-type events for people that might need connection, uh, want connection, if you're comfortable. And so we as a leadership team leaned in, we created all these types of events, right? Continuing to build opportunity for people to connect. A lot of them were virtual, but that didn't matter. Some of them were outdoors, right? When people were comfortable to get back outdoors and get together just to create that connection. One of the things that we did was we opened the office in June and we said, you know what? We have people in our community that are single, that are by themselves and and want people that are home, shoved up at home with four kids and they, they are going crazy and can't get anything done, right? What do we have to do to get our space open so that Again, our people have a space to go to be their best selves. And we made all of that optional for people. But for us, it was really about, we want you to know that we see you. We want you to know that what you're feeling is normal. We want you to know that you belong here and we are doing everything in our power to create safe spaces for you to get your needs met. And here are other resources outside of our organization that can help you should you need it. And so, you know, that really was, I think, very important for me as a person trained in helping others to ensure that we had as an organization. Yeah, I love that. Normalize it, provide resources, create community, all a huge help. If you're doing this work the right way, it's going to impact you and you're going to need to take self-care seriously you know heather listeners listeners to the show will will know that i'm a bit of a purpose freak that i spend a lot of time thinking about meaning and and purpose and and how to bring this into our clients lives uh you're right there with me and and you've taken the the additional step to create something called net worthwhile Mm -hmm. uh, which is something the signature fd uses to help people tie their life purpose to their wealth now this is a bit of a cynical statement it, it feels like it feels like every financial advisory firm is doing some sort of absolutely you know true wealth is more than money thing uh, but i think with varying degrees of success net worthwhile has been super important and and very foundational to the way that you go to 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 market as practically as possible what does it look like 
And how do you make it more than a tagline? Mm, I love that question. To your point, I believe all advisors should be doing something Mm -hmm. similar, right? That is the whole point. It is very simple. It is the fact that the things that you find worthwhile in life should be supported should be supported by the wealth, right? And and the there are things that are are wealth that are not necessarily money. Mm-hmm. Time, your resources, your energy, your time, talent, treasures. Um, but all of those things need to come together in support of the things that you find worthwhile in life. Otherwise, you get to the end and you're like, what what was it all? Or you go through life completely discombobulated. And if you speak about the financial services industry in general, if you don't pull all of those pieces together, you can end up in a situation where you have portfolios, money, products that are not integrated, that you don't know why you have them. None of them are connected to an ultimate purpose. And then you end up with a mess that is not achieving the goals that you set out to achieve. That's all it is, right? Yeah. That And that is, in a nutshell, what true core financial planning should entail. Now, that's a big ask. One, because you have to be excellent on the wealth side of the house. But two, because you have to be excellent on the worth side of the house as well. And so that's really where this concept of how well can you help people uncover the things that they find worthwhile in life. And many times, I think as practitioners, we all find that clients are so scared of the wealth side or so focused on the wealth side or so have so much anxiety about the wealth side that they've never actually been able to open their hands and and say, you know what, for a minute, I'm just going to cross over to the worthwhile side and I'm going to really go deep there and figure out what it is that matters to me and to my family. And I'm going to build intentionally to accomplish those goals. So for us, all of these things that we've done over our 25-year history, building in the toolkit of how do you have these conversations? How do you do them well? How do you not get burned out over time? How do you tie the integration of all of these pieces, the expert financial technical knowledge of all of these different pieces together into a cohesive plan that is simple enough that people can actually activate it. Because if we go back to the behavioral component, if you're not building in a way that people can actually implement the plan, you have you have done them a disservice. Yeah. So, you know, as part of our, our ongoing collaboration and as part of my prep for this conversation, you know, my wife and I actually have begun going through this this net worthwhile process 
And, you know, my wife, who's not in the industry and isn't, you know, privy to all of these sorts of conversations about human first advice and things, you know, we went out to lunch after after we uh, met met with SIG FD and she was like, wow, that was that was surprisingly personal, right? Like I wasn't expecting and that was her favorite part. You know, she's like, I wasn't expecting to talk about what mattered to me. Like I wasn't uh, expecting to talk about spirituality and philanthropy and, you know, my childhood money story, my fears about my parents and, you know, these sorts of things. But, you know, that was her favorite part. And she was going in sort of thinking it was going to be a highly technical exercise. Mm -hmm. And I think it was it was fun for me to see because you and I and, you know, to some extent, the listeners of this show are bought in and we know about all this stuff. But to see the magic of of tying purpose to wealth with someone who doesn't think about these things all the time, can we can sort of forget how powerful this idea really is. I, I think I think that's brilliant. And I also think it highlights a point that because we do this day in and day out, we also forget that most of the things that we bring to the table as practitioners can easily overwhelm people. Yeah. We do this day in and day out. These are they're acronyms that we use. It's language that we use. It's training, you know, that we have gotten. There's advanced degrees. And so many times, I believe that it's possible for practitioners to get caught up in the language of us versus the language of them. Mm. And I think one of the benefits that I have of not being an advisor is that I can do exactly what you did, right? I work with multiple advisors in our organization because I want to understand, I want to experience as a client what any one of our clients would be experiencing and to bring my husband into that process as well and to say, you know, is this experience good for us? Is it what I would want for any of our clients to be experiencing as they walk through this process. And to have that different perspective, you know, it goes back to that kind of secret shopper, you know, analogy at the beginning. It's like having that that person in the room that isn't like you, that sees what's going on and can speak into, hey, listen, I know you're really smart and I know all of this stuff is true and it's factual and it's important. But the most important thing, the behavioral side, is that the person sitting across from you understands how all of these things are connected to achieve the goal. Because ultimately, that's what's going to make them abide by the plan in the first place. Yeah. Because it's hard. It's yeah. so hard. <laughs> yeah, everything, everything we ask for, I, I don't think we can... Uh, emphasize this enough every single thing we ask our clients to do is hard right like we're not we're not wired for any of this we ask our clients to be long term we're wired for short termism we ask our clients to take on risk and uncertainty they're wired for action and and certainty and so the only way to truly respect and to honor that is to tie it to purpose help it be a little bit better experience and y'all do that very well 
Um, you know, Heather, a, a, when I think about some of the biggest RIAs here in Atlanta, a couple of them use a bucketing strategy and you do as well. And there's a ton of behavioral benefits to that that we've talked about on the show and, and other times. But one of the things that's unique about your bucket strategy is that it, it includes sort of a fourth philanthropic bucket, which you call give. Uh, I'm curious what led you to start using buckets in the first place and why you've gone to sort of the, uh, the, the unique path of having this charitable philanthropic give bucket. Yeah, I think that's a fascinating question. So the mental accounting aspect, the bucketing aspect of how we approach wealth really was born out of the behavioral side of things, which was, look, people do it anyway. I don't know. I saw an article the other day. Um, I don't know if, if, if anybody else saw it, but it was an article around a young black woman entrepreneur who got some PPP money. She was having trouble budgeting. And so she went to an all cash budgeting and she created this little system just for herself where she literally set a budget and she put cash in the pocket and that's what she had to spend. And so she was going that that's all she allowed herself to spend. And she budgeted it out each week. She got some PPP money. She turned that into a business and she has made millions of dollars in this one little business, which really is just the mental accounting, which is I have X dollars for this purpose. I want to be sure that these dollars go for this purpose. What that does is, one, it allows people to think about at the high level, one, what is the purpose, uncovering the priorities, two, how much do you need in each of those priorities, three, if are you taking appropriate risk in each of those buckets, because if I can isolate the risk in your protect bucket and I can ensure that all of the things that that need to be protected are protected, I am freeing your anxiety up. I am freeing you up to maybe think a little differently about the other buckets. And when markets move and when things happen, you have a different emotional response because you know that we have already appropriately handled the other buckets of of your needs. And so just that simple behavioral component, I think, was what really drove the mental accounting piece. The give bucket is something that I find fascinating because one of the differentiating pieces for us of the give bucket is that we believe that there is voluntary giving and involuntary giving. Involuntary giving, they're taxes. You have to give it away. You have to give it to the government. And, and the reality is that most of us would rather, one, minimize what we have to involuntarily give away. And two, if there are ways to give that uh, same amount that we would have to give away to a more charitable organization, we would opt to do so. If I could give that money somewhere else other than having to give it to the government, because I'm going to have to give it away whatever I do, I would prefer it to go somewhere else that's going to have you know impact. So I think our approach of, hey, listen, 
we are going to address the tax issue head on. And they're, you know, having experts, you know, the CPA experts, which is really the background of of where we were born from, it's an advent it's an advantage for us, a very advantageous um part of who we are in that we just call again, we call things what they are. We yeah. just, you know, speak the truth and and then build appropriately around that. And so for us, really leaning in not only to the involuntary part, but then to the voluntary part of how much, what is your legacy? What does matter to you? And the reality is that it may be you want to give to people. It may be you want to give to family. It may be that you want to give to charity. It may be that you want to give to yourself. It doesn't, we have no judgment. That's the beauty of net worthwhile is that we do believe that it is it is individual to every single human. We're not here to stand in judgment. We are simply here to walk alongside of you in that journey with financial expertise, but also with behavioral expertise to help get you where you want to go. Yeah. Well, as I told you earlier, I, I gave some money to the government about <laughs> I'm pretty sure here in a couple of days we will all be giving someone yeah. to the government. I hit I hit sin on my give my involuntary give right before, <laughs> and it hurt, didn't it? It hurt, it didn't it? <laughs> yeah, it hurt. It made me wish I had talked to some of your folks to be a little bit better prepared. Here's what we're going to do with this next question: We're going to empower your competition, uh, your client. I love it. Yeah, your your client retention rate is ninety seven percent, which is uh, well above the industry average. And, and I wanted to talk about, you know, as specifically as possible, what accounts for that? What do you all do there that drives this number so high? And and what could others steal from you? <laughs> I'm going to go back to one of the questions that we answered earlier. One of our core beliefs is that authenticity is incredibly important. Transparency, authenticity. And that if we aren't living our core values for our people, there's no way that our people can exhibit our core values to our clients. So one of my beliefs is that if we are doing everything in our power to empower our people, to help them feel seen and valued and like they belong and that they have space Mm -hmm. to pursue their own net worthwhile, that, that that authenticity and congruency turns around and proliferates out to every person outside of our organization that they touch. And so, you know, I, I don't sit in front of clients. I'm I'm not I'm not out there um advising individual clients. My job is to take care of the people inside of our house. And so I would I would encourage all practitioners that how you treat your team what you do for your team, how you train your team, how you lean into their well-being, it translates. It translates into every action that they have outside of your organization, specifically with your client base. And you will know 
through that authenticity, through that retention, through that loyalty, that they then are making clients feel seen and valued and like they belong. And people stay there. People, all the data shows, people stay where they feel like they belong. Yeah, I bet, I bet the listeners could say right now the name of, uh, you know, whether it's an RIA or a hotel or a fast food restaurant or whatever, which organizations treat their people well and which don't because it trickles down. Mm -hmm. And you could say, look, I, you know, hurt people, hurt people. And you know, you know who's there because they need a paycheck and you get served like you're working with someone who needs a paycheck. And you know who's there because they love the game and because they're treated well by their employer. I think that's sort of a, it's like one step removed, but it's so powerful. And I think it's such a unique take. I, I love it. So so here I'm excited to talk about this next one. Uh, SIGFD recently made uh, a big hire. You hired Tim Maurer, a uh, friend of the show and former guest, all around good guy. And I think, you know, the, the fact that you made such sort of a significant hire telegraphs a bit about where you think the future of financial advice is headed. I mean, that's a guess. Mm-hmm. But, you know, where do you think financial advice is headed 10, 20, 25 years from now? And where do the Tim Mowers of the world figure mm-hmm. into that transition? Mm-hmm. I love that question. And and um, I feel very blessed and privileged that we were able to bring Tim into our organization my belief, and now granted, we all have opinions, right? But one of my beliefs is that the technology is growing and deploying so rapidly that in the future, most of the things that we do that are not human-to-human conversation-related will be able to be done by technology. They will be able to be done more quickly. They'll be able to be done uh, more efficiently. They'll be able to be done more scalable, whether it's pick a portfolio, whether it's do all the administrative work, whether it's, um, you know, handle the taxes. I mean, and, and you see a lot of those beginnings now, right? You can load things up in a whole list, and I'm going to spit you out a whole tax summary of of what's happening. My belief is that those components, those mathematical components, those stop picking, I, I just am data analyzing and drawing conclusions from that, uh, will be able to be done by a computer. And so if that is the belief, if you trace that belief out and you start to play chess with that, what is it that people desire? And I do think we've seen a lot of this, a lot of this thesis has played out with COVID, which was the human connection was what mattered. Mm-hmm. It was what kept people sane. And and you see, you've seen it play out with kids that had to stay home and do virtual learning, not having the actual human component, that connection um, physically to humans causes decline. It causes decline mentally, emotionally, uh, spiritually, physically, right? And people are now struggling. It's part of the reason that we have 
such a mental health crisis with our youth right now. And so my belief is that as practitioners, we're, we have an opportunity to really lean into the human side, to become experts in the human side, because ultimately that is where the value is going to be. And most people would say, that's really where the value has always been, is that people stay when the relationship is really strong. Now, obviously, you have to have a strong technical game, right? Like you can't be negligent. You can't not be a fiduciary. But for the most part, I would rather do business with people I like than people I don't. Uh, That's just human nature. So my belief in, okay, if technology takes all of the technical work away, then our people are going to be the best people people that, that we can help them be. And so bringing in Tim was really twofold. It was one, how do we build the future training program for the people people? How do we build that skill base, right? How do we basically take our team through the executive MBA of people and the skills that make people good people people? And then also, how do we, you know, if if the belief is if you lean into your team, they will lean into others. Well, by God, I want our advisors to feel leaned into. I want them to feel like they have an advocate within the organization that gets them, that understands them, that has sat in their seat, that that understands what they're facing on the front lines, that has been there, done that. Um, but also that they feel like has and represents and advocates for them um, as the organization grows at the senior leadership team level. And so because that's not their job, right? They they don't need to have three or four jobs and be overwhelmed as well. We want them to have a singular focus of serving their clients to the best of their ability. But they do also need to feel supported and seen and valued and advocated for in the organization. And so that was really the the twofold reasoning um, for bringing Tim in. I'm super excited about that. Yeah. Uh, great, great addition to the team. You know, I was on a panel uh, about AI uh, at the T3 conference a few weeks back. And, you know, I've, I've noticed this tendency among advisors. Well, not all. Some are very enthusiastic, but there's a subset of advisors who have sort of poo-pooed AI, right? Like, hey, it's not going to be that big of a deal, whatever, whatever. And I think that's slightly wrong-headed. I think we should embrace technology because instead of, you know, building a practice around AI or technology, I think we want to use technology to build a practice around us around the human side. And like you said, let techno- let technology do what it does well, which is the rote stuff, the automated stuff, quick calculation, yeah. complexity, yeah. and let us do what we do well, which is guide, hold right. hands, connect, uh, be coaches, uh, be guides. And I think I I welcome our robot overlords, Heather. Like I think you know, maybe all of this stuff is gonna free us up to be more human than we've ever been before, and just 
uh, offload the least valuable parts of the planning process and keep for ourselves the most human part. So I'm excited. I completely agree. I also think that when I think about how I make decisions for the organization, I make better decisions when I have better data available to me. And and so advisors have what has been, you know, a, a pretty antiquated way of of trying to duct tape systems and data and all that kind of stuff together to get the complete picture. Yeah. There is an opportunity for them to have information and analysis and factual data in a way and at a speed that has never happened before. And I know that really smart practitioners make better decisions for their clients when they have better data. So I'm super excited about, I don't want to hire a ton of people to try to crunch data. And and there aren't a whole lot of people in the world that just want to crunch data. Let's be real. So having you know better systems to be able to do that so that better analysis better design art the better art of designing um, a, a plan for a client can happen more quickly like i'm all for it yeah well heather this has been wonderful you and your firm are great models of what it means to embrace and embed human first psychologically minded uh planning and asset management uh, if people want to learn more about you, they want to learn more about SIGFD, where can where can folks find you? Yeah, so our website, www.signaturefd.com, and we are on LinkedIn. We're on um, social media. So email address, you know, feel free, heather.fortner at signaturefd.com. Um, please reach out. We would, we would welcome the opportunity to move alongside uh, of people in our industry. We just, we love to help. Thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.